previously on Areas of Agreement. When we talk to each other, we find fairly quickly that issues that sometimes do seem very separated by geography or other demographic factors are less so when we actually begin to share and compare notes. Constructive conversation lays the groundwork for more systemic change, but without some form of action, we're not going to dismantle systems of oppression. We're not going to expand a movement for racial justice in our country. If we're not moving forward and we are so polarized we can't take action together, then we don't move forward as a country. We're bringing together people either across Pennsylvania, across Maryland, across New Hampshire, or across the country who want to take action on some issue. It might be racial injustice, it might be economic hardship, it might be transportation or housing or the environment or education. I believe the people that are going through this experience right now want to be here, they want to have real discussions, they want to bring about real impact and real change. What form is our project going to take when we're all across the country, we're in this COVID pandemic time? Dear Senator Minch, we are representing Uniting for Action, a group supported and sponsored by the Committee of 70, the Free Library of Philadelphia, and Urban Rural Action. That's Dr. Myra Forrest reading a letter written on behalf of the Uniting for Action Pennsylvania education team. The letter is addressed to a state senator in the Commonwealth. The topic, inequities in school funding. We are very concerned that Pennsylvania ranks at the very bottom of all 50 states in regard to giving additional funding to school districts in poverty. The letter, which includes a case study of one underfunded school district, is a project that the education team decided to take on after months of meeting together. You'll hear more excerpts from that letter later in the episode. But first, I wanted to rewind to tell the story of how the education team decided to pursue this project and how we got to where we are in this podcast series. Early episodes focused mostly on process. How do people who have mostly never met before People who are trying their best to form meaningful connections over Zoom agree on a systemic issue to explore. How do they write a problem statement and explore causes and effects? The previous episode focused on dialogue. How do you have constructive conversations about controversial topics with people who don't live in the same type of community you do and perhaps don't share your beliefs? Doing all of this takes work. And what I've learned from being part of an urban rural action program and interviewing other people who are as well is that the work is well worth it. I've learned to focus more on listening and understanding and less on persuading someone else that I'm right. And I've learned that without having a clear theory of change, a sense of why you're doing what you're doing and what it will likely accomplish, it's hard to feel confident in the decisions you're making. Joe Bubman, the executive director of Urban Rural Action, likes to say that the process teams go through is as important as the product they come up with. But in the opening, you also heard Joe and several others say that dialogue and mapping out ideas aren't enough. Teams involved in urban rural action programs have to take action. I know, thanks Captain Obvious. It's right there in the name. So in this episode and in subsequent episodes, we'll focus on the action, the product that teams emerge with after months of working with each other. In a previous episode, I briefly mentioned a few examples 
goals, like campaigns to raise awareness of food waste and to collect food to donate to rescue organizations. Raising awareness of an issue and working with organizations to make a meaningful contribution in one community are typical objectives. And these projects are manageable, things like creating infographics and flyers, creating a database of grocery stores that are willing to donate food. They may be small in scale, these projects, but they target specific needs. In this episode, though, I want to focus on a project that's a bit of an outlier. Because the goal is not raising awareness or donating goods. The goal is advocacy on an ambitious scale. This group of Pennsylvania residents is trying to persuade state lawmakers that they're doing it wrong when it comes to funding K-12 education throughout the state. Here's Myra again, explaining to me why inequity in education funding is an ideal project for an urban-rural action program. Pennsylvania has 500 school districts, and they are all funded at a very different level. This can be any place in the state. It, of course, affects a place like Philadelphia greatly. And there are many rural school districts across the state that are suffering from this. How does a small group start to take on such a big issue? What does it take to get buy-in from everyone on an action plan, especially when that plan involves advocacy? Is there such a thing as getting too political? And what's the best way for concerned citizens to make an appeal to politicians? This is Elliot Powers. All of that coming up on Areas of Agreement. We're here with Pottstown School Board President Amy Francis, who uh, has taken the bus to Harrisburg for what reason again? Fair funding. And what's important about fair funding? Well, we need to even the playing field for all students in Pennsylvania. That's the Pottstown School Board President speaking to a reporter at a 2019 rally outside the Pennsylvania state capitol. Pottstown is a borough of about 22,500 people. It's 40 miles northwest of Philadelphia, on the edge of Montgomery County. The county is the second wealthiest in the state. There are a lot of affluent communities, but Pottstown isn't one of them. It's a small post-industrial town, like many others in Pennsylvania, that have lost factories and other companies with good-paying jobs. The median household income there is just about $50,000. Houses cost an average of $124,000. Myra knows a lot about schools in Pottstown. She's an education advocate and works for a health and wellness foundation in the area. She's been a K-12 teacher and served in several roles as an administrator. Myra and the education team used Pottstown School District as a case study of a school in desperate need of more funding. The district has roughly 3,500 students. At least 70% live in poverty, and about 150 are homeless, according to the letter her team wrote. Myra says the district gets a lot less from the state than it deserves. Overall, according to the state funding uh, system, Pottstown School District is well over $13 million a year underfunded. $13 million buys a lot of education. And Pottstown schools are in need of a lot. When Myra was principal of a school in the district, the building she worked in was decades old and in need of major renovations. She remembers going down to the basement, where second grade classrooms were located. It just was an unhealthy atmosphere. The air quality was not good. The ventilation was not good. All over the state, you are seeing things like this in school districts that are poor. And then you go to a wealthy school district and they have the latest and greatest. 
In Pottstown, it's more than just old buildings. Schools are also understaffed in key areas. One example that I think is really significant is that at all the elementary schools in Pottstown, they have no school counselors. And when you have a school district with such poverty, poverty brings other problems and counseling is a huge piece of what needs to be done. And that's just one example. There are lots. Nurses and librarians are shared between elementary schools. There are no intramural after-school activities and relatively few sports teams. There's no budget for school district-sponsored field trips. There's little money for new instructional materials. Few AP courses are offered. At the middle school level, all foreign language has been taken away because they can't afford to pay the teachers to do it. Pottstown has the lowest paid teachers and administrators in the county. Everything that you can possibly think of is a problem when you're underfunded. Things are not as they should be. It's just very, very unfair. A lot of what Myra is describing in her district, the same can be said for schools across the state. Tammy Bean, who lives in Montgomery County, about 20 miles outside of Philadelphia, says in her district, schools are shutting down because they don't have enough students. And in one case, because a school building was in poor condition. That's the case with buildings in many other districts. They have asbestos problems. That is significant, and you shouldn't have children in those buildings if they have asbestos problems. That's a chronic problem in Philadelphia. Here's Pennsylvania State Representative Elizabeth Fiedler in a video posted by the Pennsylvania House Democrats. In my district in South Philly, our schools need a lot of help. So we have schools that have lead, asbestos, huge holes in the floor. Um, I went to an elementary school in my district that has peeling paint on the ceiling of a cafeteria. That's an elementary school. In 2018, days of rain led to a roof collapsing at a South Philadelphia high school. As a student explained in a different video from State Democrats, part of the building was shut down, but classes continued, leading to crowded, wet hallways in an already overcrowded school. To add insult to injury, there were buckets placed in the middle of one of the hallways to collect the leaking water from the ceiling, which were often shuffled or knocked over as students rushed to class. What the student goes on to say about her school will by now sound familiar. Concerns about lead paint and asbestos, problems with mold. Our schools are also hard pressed for essential resources, including full-time supportive services for a student's overall health and education, such as nurses, counselors, psychologists, mediators, physical education. So yeah, you get the idea. Education. education resources are scarce. And in rural areas, the same is often the case. School buildings there aren't much better. And when school is in person, it can be hard for students to even get there. We have some districts in Pennsylvania that are 300 square miles. They're huge. And students live very far apart and trying to get them together trying to uh, provide for students to get there without being on a bus ride of two hours each direction is huge. And this probably goes without saying. There are schools that are in really bad shape, that are chronically underfunded, that are struggling to serve students all over the country. But funding inequities in Pennsylvania are as bad as they get. In 2015, the Washington Post analyzed data from the National Center for Education Statistics. The Post found that in Pennsylvania, per-pupil spending in the poorest school districts is 33% lower than per-pupil spending in the wealthiest school districts. 
It's the biggest disparity of any state, and by a large margin. A separate report by the policy organization Education Trust found that when adjusting for the needs of low-income students, the poorest districts receive 17% less per student than the wealthier ones. The numbers differ, but the overall conclusion is consistent. The funding gap in Pennsylvania is among the worst in the country. And the reasons for this disparity are pretty clear. In Pennsylvania, nearly 60% of public school funding comes from local municipalities, mostly revenue from property taxes. And when you have a post-industrial town that we have all over the state of Pennsylvania, it leaves towns decimated and there's nothing to tax. So therefore, the schools suffer. While schools in wealthier areas benefit from an abundance of property tax revenue. So that's at the local level. And here's an important thing to understand. Pennsylvania contributes a lower share of public school funding, about 34%, than almost any other state. I'd like to tell you that there's bipartisan agreement on how state money should be spent, but no. Here's Republican State Representative Todd Stevens speaking a number of years back during a legislative session. I've stood at this podium in each of the last four budgets talking about the unfair funding formula and the way that funds are distributed from state government back to our schools. His complaint was that the state had too much leeway to redistribute money and that some districts weren't getting their fair share. The problem with this bill, Mr. Speaker, is the concept that our state government is better equipped to make decisions than our local school boards. Many Democrats, on the other hand, argue that the status quo wasn't working for less affluent communities, that the state needed to give a higher share of funding to lower-income communities that got little from property tax revenue. Here's Governor Tom Wolf several years back in a video on the need for fair funding. Pennsylvania is one of only three states that does not use a funding formula to distribute education dollars to local districts. That means poorer urban and rural districts are not getting the help they need. Without a fair funding formula, there were lots of disagreements in Harrisburg each cycle about how to distribute money. Since about 1991, it was kind of an ad hoc process to political. That's Democratic State Representative Mark Longietti in a video from the Pennsylvania House Democrats. Now, at least we're moving towards equity. It's a slow process, but we're actually counting kids. We're investing in school districts that have high poverty students because we know that they need additional supports. The movement toward equity referred to in that clip is a reference to Pennsylvania House Bill 1552, signed into law in 2016. It established a so-called fair funding formula that was agreed to by a bipartisan legislative commission. The formula takes into account things like wealth of the districts and their ability to raise revenue, and student factors like number of children living in poverty and number of children in charter schools. In a podcast she recorded, Potsdown School Board member and fair funding advocate Laura Johnson describes state education funding as a pie. And the fair funding formula is what tells us how to divide up the pie. How big your slice how is. How big your slice is. So there's a pie and rules about how to divide it. But to keep this metaphor going, people are really hungry, and there's just not enough of it to go around. The pie that the Pennsylvania education system gets from the state is like one of those little table talk, like mm -hmm. one of these little pies. Yeah. What we really need is one of those big Costco pumpkin yeah. pies that yeah. are yep. like this big yeah. for $5. We need one Absolutely. of those big Costco pies. So having a Costco-sized pie would solve part of the problem. 
More state funding means more money for poorer districts. But there's another issue. I'll let Myra explain. When Pennsylvania finally got around to putting in a fair funding formula, they, in quotes, held harmless the school districts that they had given large amounts of money to in the early 90s. So they didn't take anything away from those schools, even though in some of the school districts, the population of students had gone way down and they didn't need nearly that much money but they still were getting the same thing. So that, that's where the overfunding of school districts come from. So as it stands, only a very small percent of state funding goes through this fair funding formula. Here's Myra reading from her team's letter. Only 11% of current state funding goes towards the new formula. 89% of the funds are distributed in the old, unfair way. Here's another way of explaining what's happening, courtesy of the Pots Down podcast. Even though the formula would say you should get $20 million, right. we're going to keep giving you they that can't. $40 million. Right. It so, doesn't right. increase. So it's so a grandfather clause. It is. Clause. That's exactly well, what it is. All <laughs> the way back to, 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 <laughs> to early exactly court And it's to not hurt the people who would otherwise right. lose money. So to recap, because of this grandfather clause, this hold harmless provision, the impact of this fair funding formula is limited. Inequities remain, and it's not just socioeconomic inequality. Here is Myra reading again from the letter her team wrote. This inequity of funding shows clear racial bias. Appendix two shows that the whiter the district, with few exceptions, the more money the state provides to the school district. Conversely, the more diverse the district, the less money it receives from the state funding. Case in point, the underfunded Pottstown School District is about two-thirds non-white, with a significant share of Black and Hispanic students. Here's Reverend Greg Holston, executive director of an interfaith group in Pennsylvania called Power, in a video on fair funding. That fair funding formula was supposed to put away all of the racial inequities and other inequities in our funding system. However, that uh, formula has not, does not use all of the money that the state has. That's why fair funding advocates like State Representative Chris Rabb are now calling for stronger legislative action. I'm the prime sponsor in the House for um, HB 2501, which is the full, uh, the 100% fair funding uh, for public education bill. And essentially what it does is it takes the recommendations, the unanimous recommendations from the 2015 uh, Basic Education Funding Commission um, to put 100% of state funds through the fair funding formula. The education team has a pretty clear ask at the end of its letter. Uniting for Action is asking that both chambers of the Pennsylvania legislature review the funding inequities of this state and reform the Hold Harmless Clause, providing equitable and fair funding to districts truly in need. The legislative bodies of this state are doing a huge disservice to underserved suburban, urban, and rural students, as well as students of color, by holding to this antiquated educational funding policy. So that's the education team's plea for reform. How did the team decide on doing a letter writing campaign? Was there any dissension? What are the potential pitfalls of doing an advocacy project? What are the chances this one will be successful? More on that, coming up. 
The education team began meeting over Zoom in spring 2020. It's a small group, about a half dozen people. There's a data analyst from Philly, a school board director from the central part of the state, and several people like Myra and Tammy who live in places where school districts are underfunded. Tammy says the group didn't take long to find a clear focus. I think getting to the funding as our issue that we wanted to work on over the last six to nine months wasn't that difficult because we can all see it from very different perspectives. Tammy's perspective comes from working for a long time in an underfunded school district and from her current job at a community college that has close ties to nearby K-12 schools that lack a lot of basic resources. Before the education team started meeting, Tammy had a sense of the funding disparities, but she learned a lot more when she began digging into the data and the legislative fine print. My first reaction was I was pissed. I see the challenges of the inequities in funding, both in the work of what I do and then also with where I live. I grew up in a community that was always considered less than because the district didn't have the money to provide significant amounts of opportunity for students. It's the children that end up losing, which then ultimately means that it's our communities that end up losing because in the future, it's our children who've learned under very restricted financial means that then have to be the ones that have to lead our communities. So everybody loses. Tammy figured that conveying that message in some format to some audience would be part of the team's project. But it took a while for the team to decide that the format would be a letter and that the audience would be state lawmakers. I don't know that that was our intent when we started as a group, that this is what we wanted to do. That was one of the things we kept going, well, what are we going to do with this information? It was a lot more questions for us to figure out what the end product was going to be. Timmy says one idea was to go to events and set up info booths to discuss funding inequities. They could talk to anyone there who was interested in the issue and hopefully bump into some local politicians. But that didn't seem like it would have the greatest impact, and it also really wasn't realistic given COVID-19. Myra says people on the education team kept hearing the same message during meetings with organizations that regularly advocate for fair funding. They said, you've got to get a hold of your congresspeople, your senators. You need to call them. You need to write letters to them because if they don't hear from their constituents, everything just goes right in one ear and out the other because they think it's not important to people. The letter writing project was the best chance to affect change. When I heard for the first time about the team's project, I immediately thought back to something Joe, the Urban Rural Action Executive Director, said to me during our first interview in early fall. I asked him what projects usually consist of, and Joe said there's almost always a public engagement component. He used as an example a team that created a petition and circulated it within a community. Joe was careful to differentiate that from other types of engagement that can be more fraught. I wouldn't quite use the word advocacy or lobbying per se, because, you know, the, the challenge there is, A, 
it might be difficult for a group to align on a, a policy view and B, we don't want the project to have to depend on like influencing this governor or this state legislator, but rather what can we do within the broader community? So for instance, a team in Maryland is also taking on education inequality. But they're doing that in a very, very narrow way by essentially providing supplies to a school with largely middle and low income families where students don't have the school supplies that they need. And so are you addressing educational disparities not in a meaningful systemic way? Are you doing something at a really micro level to soften the impact of the pandemic on educational disparities? Yeah. To be clear, Joe and the rest of his urban rural action colleagues don't push teams toward one kind of project over another. They're supportive of just about anything, so long as there's consensus and it aligns with the team's goals. When I asked Joe what he thought of the Pennsylvania education team making an appeal directly to lawmakers, he reiterated that he generally doesn't recommend these types of advocacy projects. Because it's difficult for people across the ideological spectrum to agree on legislation at a state level or national level. But this education group, I think, is an outlier because I think it was easy for them to all agree on educational disparities as an issue that they need to advocate on for state legislators to address. In other words, this type of project made sense, given the team's objectives and the audience it had in mind. It's just that doing a project like this can be a bit of a high-wire act. Urban Rural Action describes the Uniting for Action Pennsylvania program as a nonpartisan online initiative. Nonpartisan there is written in all caps, so that tells you something. It's easy to imagine an advocacy project becoming partisan. But Myra said there was nothing partisan about her team's project. Because it wasn't that we were trying to push one party over the other party. We're trying to push all of them. Here again is Tammy. How we're moving forward with this work really goes into the political. And, and not political in terms of whereby we're partisan one way or the other. But it's really a governmental issue. Neither Myra nor Tammy recalled other group members raising concerns about the project being too partisan or too focused on advocacy. They both describe the letter-writing process as smooth and drama-free. There's not a playbook for how to make this type of project work, but it's definitely possible under the right circumstances when a team that's well-aligned takes on an issue that affects people across geographic boundaries. But it's easy to imagine it not working if team members have substantial ideological differences. If you can't agree on what fair funding means, for instance, there's not much of a chance you can craft a letter with a clear message that satisfies everyone. It's also easy to imagine a team saying, sure, we agree on what fair funding looks like and we know that only state lawmakers can change the status quo, but we have limited time to work together. And even if we manage to make a persuasive case, it's unlikely that we're going to change minds in the state capitol. That wasn't this team. Even after the Uniting for Action program ended around Thanksgiving, team members continue to meet. Part of the motivation to see this project through is that in January, a new session of the Pennsylvania General Assembly got underway. Here again is Tammy. Having the opportunity to, to try and show our upcoming state legislators what we see in the way schools are currently funded, I think was really important. Myra is especially eager to make the case for fair funding to the new delegation of state lawmakers. 
new people especially are ripe to hear these things because I don't think that they understand them or know about it as much as they should. Letters are being mailed to the members of Harrisburg and district office and emailed to them as well. The letter Myra read from is addressed to Senator Bob Mensch, a Republican who represents the Potsdam School District. The education team hopes other groups who are interested in education funding will adapt the letter and send it to their representatives as well. It's not just like putting a message out there and disseminating it. It's providing a model for community members to use as they themselves advocate through the letter template. The education team understands it'll take a lot of work to get the attention of state lawmakers and persuade them to change the status quo. Myra hopes the combination of the letter and the case study of Potsdam as a district in desperate need of resources will do the trick. I don't think you can possibly read that case study and not be touched by the inequities that, that lurk therein, especially if you are a person that lives in a school district uh, of wealth and you compare what your children have and then you read that letter. I can't imagine it not touching you somehow. Coming up on the next episode, an issue that's near and dear to my heart. An issue that the media team I'm a part of is focused on. The decline of local journalism. More specifically, news deserts, places in urban and rural America that are without access to quality local news. Thanks for listening.